This is a question and answer session with Joel titled Practical Advice for the Path, recorded May 8, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I did have a question about meditation, about progression on the meditation practice. Sometimes I see myself progressing in a certain way, and sometimes it seems like you know, mindfulness really isn't there any more than it was when I started. I don't know what the question is. I guess it's just kind of observation or get the question, is that normal? Uh, what do you mean by when you say that you see yourself progressing in some ways? Can you be more specific? I guess doing the meditation object and just being able to focus on such a subtle, a subtle, um, image, you know, something I couldn't have done a year ago or whatever. But, um, so that's, so I see that as a real progression. Not being so, progressing in terms of not being as attached to, um, not being as bothered by, um, when, when, when I lose, when I lose concentration, not feeling so guilty, not having as many emotions about that, I guess I see the progression. And, and in terms of not progressing, it's just, you know, it seems like it's always the mind, I mean, the concentration is there and then it's gone, it's back and gone. And in a sense, it's the same as it was when I started, that it, it is, it's there and gone all the time. So it's not like I'm being able to hold hold the concentration for a long period of time. And the progression, I guess, is being able to hold some of the Well, uh, the way you can progress, if you want to progress, in holding the concentration for longer periods of time is to do more meditation. Uh, how many how many uh, minutes a day do you meditate? Uh, 50. 50 minutes in one session or two sessions? Two sessions, two sessions right. Well, at, at that's about two 20-minute sessions, 25-minute sessions, yeah. So 30 and a 20. 30 and a 20. Um, your, your concentration probably won't improve much at that level. That's considered in, for instance, Buddhist tradition, maintenance level. It'll, it'll stay where it is, which is, which is fine. Um, it's, the real trick, then, is to start to bring that into everyday your everyday life. That's what's really important. So, uh, it's, if you wanted to develop your meditation uh, and have more ability to concentrate, you'd have to do more of it, you know, in a, in a formal way. Uh, but really, uh, perhaps you can't or perhaps you don't want them just because of your the business of your life. But really, the important thing then is to start to apply this in little tiny ways in everyday life. So that, for instance, uh, when you're doing a little task, you remember to take this as a meditation, and then you practice concentrating on that. Do you see what I mean? Doing one task at a time, for instance, is a very good way to extend a meditative practice of concentration into everyday life. So when you're, uh, you know, doing the dishes, you're doing the dishes. Don't let your mind wander off thinking about what you're shopping uh, for 
the next day. You see what I mean? And if you find your mind wandering off, bring it back to the dishes. So you can actually, well, I guess what I'm saying is you can actually extend the concentration practice without adding any particular hours or any length of time to the meditation. That's one way to do it. It isn't easy, but that's one way to do it. The other thing to do is to to really make sure that you uh, approach as much as possible in your life uh, whatever you're doing with that that uh, intention to be mindful, whether it's concentrated or not, but that intention to to observe, to observe, because that's really where insight comes from. The concentration, in a certain sense, you could say, is an aid to the insight. The concentration in the, is a very important, but in a certain sense, secondary practice. And when I say secondary, it means you, I don't mean you can skip it. But you do the concentration in order to be able to have the insight, not the other way around. So in that sense, again, it's, as I've often said, it's like playing scales on a piano or a musical instrument. You play the scales so that eventually you can play the music freely. So in a certain sense, the, the point of practicing scales isn't so that you can end up being able to play scales flawlessly. Do you know what I mean? But if you are unhappy with the level of concentration, do more meditation. Do more meditation. It's that simple. In that sense, there is, you know, a, a kind of a direct payoff. The more meditation you do, the more concentrated your mind will become, uh, the easier it will be to do that, and then the more mindful you'll be in, in your daily life. It's up to you. So, when we talk here about progress or not progress, we're talking about uh, a periodically looking at a meditation practice and, and trying to assess it. But that's very different than sitting down on the meditation pillow with the idea of progress in your mind with the worry about whether you're making progress or not. Do you know what I mean? You, if you, if you uh, sit down at the meditation pillow and, and think either, oh, I've made a lot of progress, or I'm not making any progress, that automatically interferes with the meditation. Do you see what I mean? So it'd be like any job you have. When you do a job, to do a job well, do it wholeheartedly, you know what I mean? put yourself into it, body and soul, you do the job, and then periodically you want to assess how it's going. If every moment you're doing the job, part of you is thinking, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? You know, am I making, you know, is it going there? You're going to distract yourself from doing the job properly. Any job. And the same is true of meditation. I guess I see that coming in a lot of like when I'll, I'll get this image, and then almost immediately there's this judgment about, oh, well, that's a good, that's doing better than I have done before or something. So then, then it kind of destroys the, the image. So that is their kind of almost an automatic thing of well, judging that. Well, then that's something to watch for. I mean, this is partly what meditation reveals, the subtleties of how the mind works. Do you see what I mean? And when you find yourself doing that, then practice detachment. Don't repress the judgment, but just ignore it. Say, oh, here's another distraction, subtle level distraction, because it, it seems to be about what you're doing. It, this is particularly evident in um, creative activity. I don't know if uh, uh, I've been a writer, and uh, writer's block uh, is really nothing more than the phenomena of 
of the judging mind getting in there so strongly that it just won't let anything happen else. And uh, when you're writing well, as, as uh, uh, at least dramatic writing is what I'm what I've done in the past. Uh, there's a, an expression: the characters start speaking themselves. And you're writing a scene, and you have certain characters, and and they start just speaking. You you're almost like a uh, typist, you know. <laughs> you're just writing down what they're saying. You can actually feel that flow. It's not you doing it anymore. And that's the best writing. You can go back later and, and clean it up a little bit, you know what I mean? But that writing, you know, that's going to be really authentic writing. But if you're sitting there thinking, what should the character say next? Is that the right thing to say next? Is that the perfect thing to say? You know what I mean? That it comes out, if it comes out at all, very stilted. So the same thing is true of the meditation, except instead of a doing, you're, you're not doing here, almost, you know what I mean? So watch, but this is, you know, this, then this is insight. If you can see your judgmental mind working in your meditation, then you can start to see it working in your daily life. In your relationships with people, in your tasks that you're doing, do you know what I mean? If you, this is part of why you meditate on a, on a pillow without, with as few distractions as possible, because you can start to see things that are very difficult to see, uh, in the normal, Hurly burly course of events, and if you can, but if you can start to see them on the pillow, then you know what to look for. It's much easier to spot in the bustle of daily life. Yeah. If if one does a devotion practice, does one need to have a manifestation of God to focus on to be devoted to? It helps, but uh, why don't you try to be make your question a little bit more specific? I mean, what, what, what? Let me ask you. No, let me ask you this: What would a devotion practice that that had no object be like? That's what I'm struggling with. <laughs> <laughs> well, why would you want that? Because I don't know. I don't know what God is, so to be devoted to something that I can't picture and so forth, I'm wondering if I'm trying to do something that is not possible. Well, I need a Krishna or a Shiva mm -hmm. or a... No, oh, I see, okay. You certainly don't need a any sort of visual object. That can help. And to have a visual object, you can do double duty with. You see what I mean? You can do a concentration practice like Fred was talking about. Uh, plus, you can make it an object of devotion. So you can combine them two and have a very, very powerful practice. But it's certainly not necessary to have any object, uh, no, visual object. Question, really. Okay. <clears throat> if you have all that's required for a devotion, devotional practice in the way we're talking about it, all that's required is some sense that there is some power, if you like, or some word like that, in the universe, an intelligence in the universe, uh, beyond yourself, beyond your own. You don't have to have anything more. You don't have to, to formalize it anymore for yourself. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you don't have to think of it as a big daddy or a big mommy or anything like that. 
that something is operating in the universe with intelligence that's outside of what you normally consider your intelligence. And, and it is a, uh, that is an, an intelligence that underlies all the phenomena arising, not just some specific other intelligence, like you could look at Bonnie and say, well, I, I recognize Bonnie's intelligent too. Not as intelligent me, of course, but she's, you know, got some intelligence. But some intelligence that has that, that awesomeness, you know, that, that when you look at the sun, you realize there's order, there's harmony, there's, that's what I mean by intelligence. It doesn't have to be a, a personal motivated intelligence, you know what I mean? Uh, that all this arising, the, the trees, the clouds, the lakes, the rivers, the stars, do you see? And then if you have that sense, that's what you direct your devotional practice to. And it doesn't have to be any more than that. And frankly, sometimes it's a great advantage not to have anything more than that, to keep it a mystery to yourself. Once people start figuring out who God is, uh, they start to get in trouble very often, you know? And then they start to think that they know what God wants, and then, you know, I mean, in very, you know, in a very specific way. Not only do they, they then figure that they know what God wants for them, which uh, may be helpful, but they also then think they know what God wants for everybody else. Then they really get in trouble. Is that helpful yeah, in answering very, the question? Very helpful because you know I've done a lot of a lot of that trying to figure out who God is, and then I decided I probably wasn't going to figure it out. But then to practice became kind of nebulous. I guess one of the things that helps me get closest to that is to. Um, visualize the ocean or the river and feel what's in that which provides then some sense of a greater something. Hildegard Figgen wrote a beautiful, beautiful piece about the spirit of God speaking to her through the rivers and the streams and the clouds and all that. Do you know what I mean? So this is just, the name spirit is just some, you're picking some name that indicates a recognition that whatever is working in the ocean is also working in the in the clouds, and whatever working in the clouds is also working in the stones. Do you see what I mean? So it, the name is really unimportant, but you know, for her it was spirit. She could always she started to recognize the spirit that spirit of God, as she would call it. But just this power, this intelligence, this something beyond their own little you know her own little world and concerns. And she began to recognize it more and more in everything. So, I mean, everything became an object of devotion in a certain sense. And yet, it's not, it's not the ocean that's the object of, of devotion. It's, it's what the ocean is manifesting. I mean, what the ocean is a manifestation of, I should say. You see what I mean? Uh, Lali Schwartz says the same thing when she talks about, um, you know, seeing everything as a manifestation of Shiva. Every form is Shiva's form, and so forth. But the, the only, you know, the, the difference here between a spiritual approach to this and just nature lovers or nature worshippers and stuff is you you recognize this, you begin to recognize this underlying something, somewhat spirit, you know, uh, that that it's oh, I see it in the ocean, I see it in the stars, I see it in. Uh, brother Sun and Sister Moon, you see?
And so then the attention is towards that, and any particular form isn't all that important. The sun can rise, and the sun can set and go, and you haven't lost your object of devotion. You see what I mean? The moon comes out, the moon waxes and wands, comes and goes, but you still, you know, you're not dependent on the moon being there to have something to worship. So, you know, I, I would, if you have uh, trouble with formal sorts of names, like Krishna or Shiva or something like that, pick a name that's intimate to you. Just spirit or just, you know, whatever. I had somebody in our group once who, for a retreat, came up with Captain Jack. I believe that's what it was. Captain Jack? Well, okay, fine, if it works. Do you know, this is, you want to get, you want to recapture that intimacy that children have with the divine. And that's what you want to, you know, recapture in a devotion, and it just doesn't matter what, what particular name, you know. It's just helpful to the mind to have a name. You can address that name. Do you know what I mean? You can say, "Oh, spirit, and all of, and uh, and all of forms." You know, if you want to address it. You know, you don't always have to address it. Sometimes it's much more important to listen to it, and then you don't need a name at all. So, in that sense, yeah. But I think maybe addressing it would be helpful in some way, but. Find that name, you know, the name is important. Find that name that, that, you know, reflects to you this sense of some mystery, some power, some intelligence uh, beneath phenomena, manifesting phenomena. In fact, let me just say one more thing about that. It's interesting, and for instance, in the Jewish tradition, it's forbidden to speak the name of God. Forbidden, just so you don't get stuck on, you know, that the name of God is really, you know, mm -hmm. it keeps it a mystery. The struggle I was having was with God being nothing and no thing, and to have devotion to nothing uh, was really getting in my way of trying to do this. Ah, okay, but let's let's pursue this a little bit. You said you think of the ocean and what is in the ocean, right? And then, is there anything else that... Uh, uh, okay, I don't think of the ocean. I experience the ocean okay. and the power and the... Right. And How about anything else? Wind do it for you? Uh, the river. River. The ocean and the river. River and the ocean, okay. So, but if you have two things, river and ocean, then whatever it is isn't the ocean, no. not that thing. It's not the river, not that thing, not this thing, not that thing, not this, not that, neti neti, what the Hindus say. This is exactly how neti neti works, the practice of neti neti. It's not actually the ocean. It's not actually the river, as though if the ocean dried up, then God would be gone. So it's not this thing, it's not that thing. And all the things you can think of, it's really not any of those things. Not the azalea. It's not the azalea, although the azalea might, you know, reflect that to you. 
Certainly. It's not the star, although, you know, you look up at night and you get a sense of that. It's not this, not that, and anything you think of. It's not this, not that. Well, that's nothing. No thing. You know. So, nothing in our language is such a negative term, we can only think of it as being absolutely valueless. Nothing. Empty. I mean, just, you know. Um, and that's, there, there are no other good words to translate this idea from, from other languages, and even from languages like Greek and Latin, where uh, John Scott, is, or Gina, for instance, wrote about God as nothing, literally. Nihilio, nihil, nihil, who speaks Latin? Nihilio. Nihilio. Yeah, N-I-H-I-L-I-O. Right. Uh, Dionysius spoke about it in Greek, and I don't know what the Greek word is. Uh, so even, in, even from the Christian tradition, we have to translate it into English. And what do we have? Words like void, empty, nothing. Those are words that indicate that it's not a thing. So could it also be said it's the absence of an object? Or is that getting too concrete? It's not the absence of an object either. <laughs> because, look, it's there in the, in the, in the rivers, in the ocean. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't depend on there being an absence of objects, but it isn't an object. That's why, you know, when we get start getting technical, we try to talk about this, we say it transcends that distinction between object or no object. It, 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 in one sense, it transcends the whole world of form because it doesn't depend on any particular form, but in another sense, it's eminent in all form. Because you see it in the, if you can see it in the ocean and you can see it in the river, believe me, you can start to see it in the wind and you can start to see it in the leaves and you can start to see it in the azaleas. And then you can start to see it in the, in the flies and mosquitoes and the slugs. Do you know what I mean? And then you can actually start to see it in the garbage. And then it uh, comes to a place where there's nowhere where you can look where you don't see it. Which is why that little Buddhist monk, you know, who is, Traveling around Japan, and he was staying in a monastery one night. Every night he'd show up at a different monastery. And um, it was the middle of the night, and it was dark, and there was no moon out, and he didn't know the grounds very well. He had to really take a pee bat. So he got out, and he left his little room they put him in, and he went out in the shadows, and he just started peeing. And uh, another monk heard this and came out with a torch and found he's peeing on a statue of the Buddha. You know, like that uh, Cloud Mountain little statue of the Buddha they have in the walk? And he says, what? What? Look at this. He's peeing on the Buddha. And all the monks come out and they're furious and horrified. And the monk is standing there. He looks around and says, well, where isn't the Buddha? Where isn't the Buddha? Poor guy who never be able to pee. <laughs> so, transcendent and imminent. These are two contradictory terms. Wholly transcendent and wholly imminent, as the early Christians insisted, Augustine and Dionysius and stuff. You know, it's not. We shouldn't think of it as like uh, some sort of a uh, uh, space uh, that just, or, or some sort of I don't know, uh, ether or something that permeates everything. Augustine said, "All of God is in that pillow. All the whole of God is in that pillow." 
the pillow doesn't divide up God. So some of God's outside the pillow and some of God's inside the pillow. All of God is in that pillow. And yet all of God is outside that pillow. Well, now we see we get into paradox and mystery. But from the point of view of a practice, you start with just what you're talking about. You get a sense of that mystery, that power, that spirit, whatever you want to call it. In any object, any form can be a form of God for you. Anyway, again, the, the most important thing is your own experience. You know, just you start with the ocean. If the ocean speaks to you, trust it. I'm speaking. It's got something to say to you. Do you know what I mean? If you dismiss it, you're dismissing part of yourself. And yourself will always war against you when we dismiss ourselves. This is what the Gita says. You don't trust yourself. Who? I mean, that trust, you know what I mean? If you don't trust your experience at that level, not the experience that's been, that you've uh, uh, inherited from your culture, that the way people have told you to think and see things, but, you know, to get to the, the truth of your own experience, if you don't trust that, well, you're, then there's no hope. Then we're all lost, you know. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. Sorrow, fear, yeah. Everybody goes on a spiritual path. Most people go on a spiritual path in the beginning and think, oh God, my life's such a mess. I'm going to get on a spiritual path and things are going to start to get joyful and then I'm going to have, I'm going to go on retreat and I'm going to do meditation and I'm going to get calm and then all my relationships with people are going to get straightened out and I won't be bothered by things and all that. That's a big shock. Things get worse. You start to see the way things really are. My God, they're a lot worse than you thought, actually, in some sense. Do you know what I mean? They started getting better for a while. <laughs> well, yes, of course, the honeymoon. You know, it's always best to, you know, you have to get married in the wedding reception, at least in the old days, and people went off and, you know, the first year was a ball until you start to realize who you married. You know? <laughs> then you have to come to grips with that. Or you can run away and find another mate and go through it all over again. And then, you know, you start to, you look more closely, you start to see the warts and, you know. You know people look very different, I've discovered in my life anyway, when you wake up in the morning, you know, after a wild night, than they did when you picked them up at the door and they were all dolled up, you know, and makeup and all that. Well, it's the same thing. No, really. And then you have a choice, and most people do, is then they, when, when they start to get too close to life, they, they want to run off and look for another life, and they'll find a better life, you know? And what the, part of a whole mystical path is say, no, stop, okay? The honeymoon's over, now, now the real work comes, yes. Now you see the warts, the wrinkles, you know? So stay with this, because so you run off and go get another spouse, you're just going to go through the same thing again and again and again. And someday, you're going to have to face the warts and the wrinkles, because you'll be looking in the mirror, and that's where you'll see them, you know? There's no getting away from it. There is no escape. But, just as anybody who's ever had a really successful relationship will tell you, if you get through that period, then you find something really deep and valuable, you know? You go talk to those old people who've been married, you know, the 80s, 80, 90-year-old who've been married for, you know, 75 years. They'll tell you the honeymoon was, you know, I mean, that was the honeymoon has its place, but that's not what life is about, really.
So it's normal that it start out great and then, you know, read Mirabai. <coughs> Talking about a devotional practice, read Mirabai. Talking about sorrow and sadness. We read some Mirabai on that retreat, right? Krishna, you came and you lit the fire of longing in my heart, but you have not returned to put it out. Krishna, what sort of manners is this? I mean, she gets angry at him. She scolds him. How can you abandon me? Red-eyed Mirabai every, every day, every morning, Mirabai, red-eyed, sweeps the dust from the path, hoping Krishna will return. Sorrow, heartbreak, despair. Yeah. Where's your commitment? Hmm. There's a saying in our culture, when the, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, I think mystics would say, when the going gets tough, the tough stay put. They don't get going anyplace. That's the time to stay put. You can take that image of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. Stay put. Commitment. Pay attention. That's the first thing. Then commitment's the second big principle. If you don't have that, you'll have a nice honeymoon. So you, and then you'll go off to other teachers and you'll have other honeymoons and take up other practices, not just spiritual. And you'll do that all your life. You'll be having honeymoons. Those are the two, the two first ones. Without those, there's no spiritual path. Or you don't get very far in a spiritual path. Then detachment. Yes, all this stuff comes, you know, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, the joys, the sorrows, the fears, the happiness, and all that comes and goes and comes and goes, and you stay put. And then comes the surrender, where there's no one to stay put. No one was there in the first place. Then all the stuff is coming and going, but there's no one there to buffet against. You know, the image of the, the Buddha's there sitting under the Bodhi tree and, and he stays put and, uh, you know, temptations arise and desire arise and they can't move him. He had this like a storm, you know, and the solid rock in the middle of it. That's a good image to have. I mean, up to a certain point. Sometimes we have to be like that at a certain point. But the real inside of the path is, there ain't no rock there. There never was a rock there. There's nothing for storms to buffet against. That's what's suffering. You think there's something there, and so storms are buffeting you. There's no one there. There's nothing there. There's no thing there to buffet against. That's just the play of that no thing. All this is just the play of that no thing, and there's nothing in the way of it. There's no obstacle to it. Like, like the dancer who dances in, in completely open space. Completely free because there's no obstacles. There's nothing to bang into. She can dance to the whole galaxy. You only have suffering if you go 
have a wall to bang into. If you're dancing free, you don't bang into anything. There's no suffering. If you try to dance wildly in a closet, you come out black and blue, believe me. You know what I mean? You thrash around in there for a while, you come out and full of hurt. But if there's no closet, if there's no prison house called self, let the storms come. Let the sorrow come. Let the fear come. And the, and the uh, Lao Tzu says, uh, for the, the one who's uh, realized the Tao, uh, there's no place for death to get a hold of in him. Something like that. No place, the idea is there's no place for death to put its hooks into. It's not that death isn't there. Death comes along and, and reaches into the hook, but there's nothing there to hook. Death can't hook into anything. Mark of seriousness, and it's very important to know that. It's very important to know that. You should take it as a, as a positive sign, a sign of progress. No, I'm, I'm really serious about that. <clears throat> it's when things are getting nitty-gritty. At least in my experience, I'll tell you, that's when I knew that, that this path I had to follow through. That all my life, in some way, I'd been dodging things. And now suddenly, it didn't mean that I knew. I, I knew less about things. I became uh, more confused mentally about things. But I also, on the other hand, knew that somehow, one way or another, in all my life, I'd always been running away, you know, dodging, not getting too involved, skirting around, or, you know, playing out my life that way. And it sort of this all caught up with me and was sweeping me away, and I thought, well, fine, let's just, let's go. This is it. I don't know where it's going, where this ride's taking me, but uh, this is the real one anyway. It's got that going for it. Dr. Wolf said an interesting thing in a very different way, but from an intellectual point of view. When he got on a spiritual path, he wanted to know the truth about life. And he didn't care if the truth turned out to be uh, what the materialists said, that life is meaningless, do you know what I mean? It's just all nothing but a bunch of atoms bashing around. There's no point to it. Uh, that it's all, you know, it all ends in death and suffering and there is no escape from death and suffering. He said, okay, fine. If I know that, absolutely to be the truth, I will accept that. I don't want to be fooled. I don't want to fool myself. So in that sense, you have to be willing to accept that that might be the outcome of this. But is there any other game in town? There's only one other game in town, and that's fantasy. We'll pretend that we can ride off in the sunset together and live happily ever after. It's good when you're young, a certain amount of fantasy, you know, gives you a certain optimism, and uh, the things you're not ready to handle. When you get to be our age. I could say that to Gene, because I'm actually older than Gene. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Well, the thought that came to me is that materialism is actually a fantasy. It's just, there's just no, it's just one of the fantasies that people pick out.
It is, you know, I'll tell you an interesting thing about materialism. It developed at a time when Greek culture was falling apart, in the late Greek culture, and people had lost their belief in these anthropomorphic gods, you know, and so forth. That, uh, a little bit like our, very much like our culture in the sense that, you know, you can no longer take these myths seriously about, you know, gods intervening in someone's life or that you would sacrifice a ram and it would really make a difference, you'd get rain or something like that. And it developed uh, as uh, really, in a certain sense, a spiritual way of looking at things. Um, Lucretius was, the, um, was a Roman who picked it up from the Greeks, and he wrote this poem on nature, and it was all about how it's nothing but void and atoms, and it all just comes together, and all these forms just come together and disappear and so forth. And his point was, so why get upset about anything? Why, not, If you accept it all... If, if that really is the truth, there's no self. It's just atoms, you know. And so if you can really understand there's no self, you have serenity, you won't, you know. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting that uh, it, it's hard to tell whether he actually had some mystical insight into this, but it certainly started to be like a, the idea that there is no self, that all is flux and change, all is impermanent. And when you start to realize that, you start to look at how you react to things, and you begin to realize that's all very unrealistic. How different the modern materialists have taken over that idea, but they'll follow it all the way through. If it was all the way, if that's true, there is no self. Mm -hmm. and, and if you take that seriously, you'll start looking at things in terms of detachment and so forth. So it's a double fantasy. You want your cake and eat it too. Right? There's, there's no God, there's nothing else, which means really there's no morality, you know, I can do anything, I can, I can indulge all my desires, I can, uh, you know, and I can get all this stuff, and, and, and the best things are the, are the, the things, you know, the, the physical things, the cars and all that, and yet I don't really have to face the, the true consequences of that view, that there's no one there who's enjoying all this, she really take a look at it. It's just nothing but atoms. So it's a very selfish, self-serving kind of philosophy. It becomes that, you know, a way of justifying just unbridled selfishness. Which, in the ultimate scheme of things, there's nothing wrong with. It just makes those people miserable, that's all. It's not like God's going to come strike them dead because they're selfish. They, they strike themselves dead, or they strike the they create their own hell. But even any philosophy is, you know, you use the principle of reflexivity and anything is fantasy, even the fantasy that there are mystics. Yes, okay, yes, ultimately you're right. <laughs> ultimately you're right. So you have to give up all those fantasies. Even the fantasy that you could give up fantasy, see? <laughs> There is an end. It, it cannot be figured out, it cannot be worked out, and it's not an end that, causes, that occurs in thought. But there is an end to all that, to that confusion. To reflexivity. Yes. Reflexivity is created by thought. It doesn't exist right. in reality. There is no reflexivity, really. It's created by thought, and as, as, all, as our worlds, our universes are created by thought, and then we create them, they confuse the hell out of us because we think they're real. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we had a good little sharp discussion this morning. Why don't we uh, bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And you're welcome to stay and have some tea. Check out the library as usual. Peace to you all. Peace to you.